Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Fixed Income Conversation Corner on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. I am joined today in studio by Head of Taxable Fixed Income Strategy for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Leslie Falconio. Leslie will be moderating today's discussion with our guest, Colin McBurnett, Senior Portfolio Manager with Angelo Capital. So with that, Leslie, welcome. I'll pass it over to you. Thank you, Dan, and, and thank you, Colin. This is really great for us because we, it's not that often that we have uh, you know, funds that are, that represent RMBS and, you know, a sector that we happen to like right now. We're, we're overweight in terms of the agency MBS side, but this really encompasses all of the, the mortgage side. So it's really great to have you on and I really appreciate you coming. So I, I wanted to start off really quickly just in terms of our, you know, our clients and advisors. And let's just take a look at and just discuss, you know, what you think of residential mortgage-backed securities, you know, wh- who's a natural buyer, what sort of, what are these trends that you've seen and how has it changed since, say, what people view as the great financial crisis? Sure. Thanks so much for, for having me today. Uh, really appreciate being here. It's it's a great partnership that that we share with UBS, and so uh, it's wonderful to have an opportunity like this to to talk through uh, talk through markets. You know, RMBS is residential mortgage backed securities has two two major components: agency MBS and and, and non agency MBS. Uh, one is several times larger than the other, and so we'll just start briefly on on agency MBS because I think it tells a story of what's going on in the non agency non agency world, and uh, that market, the over two thirds of it today is still owned by the Fed largely purchased through through their quantitative easing, uh, and banks who bought alongside the Fed, and, and as they often do uh, over, the past, uh, over the past few years. You had a historic refi wave um, when rates plummeted uh, following the pandemic in 2020, and, and a lot of that production wound up either in the banking system or, or on, on the Fed balance sheets. Uh, as uh, QT began, that has removed Fed from markets. Banks have, have well-documented uh, Issues at the moment with their investment portfolios and 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 where those mark to market losses or, or gains may be, uh, and so you've seen both of those groups pull back dramatically. Uh, as a result, you layer in uh, substantially high implied volatility or or, or rate fall uh, that we saw throughout 2022 as the Fed uh, embarked on a historic path for uh, for tightening Fed policy, uh, and it was a really tough year for for agency mortgages. And you have. Current coupon nominal spreads in agency mortgages are, are not accounting for the, the option value, uh, as wide as they've been since the peak of the, the post-global financial crisis. Uh, and we are, we're well above 100. We're at about 160 basis points of, of nominal spread there today. Uh, and we have not hovered above 100 for very long, really, ever, outside of the, the peak of the stress during the GFC. And that's put pressure on, on all mortgages. Non-agency or the non-government guaranteed portion of the, of the mortgage market feels that as well. Uh, and so with the natural buyer for mortgages in the Fed and the banks, or, or banks predominantly, but, but with the Fed having been a natural buyer over the past several years, uh, on the sidelines, you've seen everything revert back to money managers. Uh, so it's been a money manager-dominated uh, investment investor base. Insurance companies are also involved. Uh, you have started to see a little bit more buying from banks here and there. Uh, but I think where you would naturally see them stepping in in large scale as yields have gotten to this point, given the legacy issues in their portfolio, uh, it's been uh, it's kind of been searching for that buyer, and that that has largely been found again in the money manager community. So when we think about it, we I can't we can't dismiss about what's happened the past year with the Fed, right? We've had this historical move up in Fed funds rate, you know, and the yield curve is inverted, which is a little bit a bit of a, a precursor of what happened back, you know, before the GFC. We had a huge inversion of the yield curve. So how do you think in terms of 
overall mortgages or what type of, say, mortgage product is impacted by the yield curve? And how do you think or could be possibly impacted by what the Fed has, has done over the past year? So I think you know, what's been really interesting is if you look back at the, the leading into the global financial crisis, um, Greenspan gave a speech uh, in 2004 about uh, wanting to, to have baby boomers take advantage of, of historically low rates and then hiked rates like 14 times in a row. Yeah. Uh, and so you had this huge percentage of, of, of floating rate borrowing. Almost 50% of all mortgages outstanding were, were floating rate. Many of them had negatively amortizing components. They had IO components, all these things that could create payment shocks uh, in the post-global financial crisis period. So I guess, well, one, one comment before that. So the impact of higher rates was felt very quickly by, by borrowers and, 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 uh, and, and homeowners. In the post-global financial crisis period, uh, partly due to regulation around how you, you underwrite debt-to-income ratios as it relates to, to floating rate mortgages, and partly because people were, I think, largely, uh, largely scarred by that experience that they had, uh, over 97% of all origination has been fixed rate, 30-year fixed rate amortizing. And, and over 93% of now all mortgages outstanding are 30-year fixed rate amortizing mortgages. So uh, the impact of, of the change in the curve has not impacted those that own homes currently from a payment perspective. Uh, it has certainly weighed on uh, on people's ability to buy a home for the first time. Uh, and where we've really seen it uh, is is it's created the, the effect of rent control for people that already own a house. You have existing home sales are down 26% year to date uh, versus where they were last year, a historically tight uh, supply environment uh, amidst a backdrop of, of, of an existing housing shortage prior to rates going up uh, in the way that they have. So it's created some affordability challenges. It certainly helped cool off the housing market a little bit, and, and, and that's certainly more regional than, than national. Um, but it has, you know, for those borrowers, it has not created an, an uptick in delinquencies like we've seen in prior cycles uh, because of the, the now largely fixed rate nature of the, uh, of the mortgage universe. So when we think about sort of like what's happening, we talk about the 30-year fixed, right? So let's – and we talked a little bit about the agency and non-agency aspect. You know, we know in 2022, just some of the headwinds we saw from rising interest rates from 1.5% 10-year yields to four and a quarter in, in 22 to a really big spike in vol. You know, we entered this year hoping that vol, although elevated, would not continue to be as heightened as it was, but it has shown to be – we've proved a little bit false, although it's coming down recently. How would you do – how do you describe the performance between like, you know, the – the headwind of interest rate volatility for like an agency MBS versus a non-agency, for example, and how can investors protect themselves by maybe being more diversified? Sure. So the, you know, the, the, in terms of the volatility component of mortgages, the structure between a non-agency or the actual mortgage and a non-agency mortgage and an agency mortgage is identical. Uh, and in fact, a lot of mortgages that are originated to go into the agency path ultimately never get guaranteed and, 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 and stay or become a non-agency mortgage over time. So the underlying assets behave very similarly. Um, and that's that as a, an owner of mortgages, you're naturally short volatility through the borrower's option to prepay at their discretion in full or in part any point over 360 different periods. Uh, the structures themselves, though, can result in in different performance. Uh, the non the agency mortgage market is largely, you know, when we, when we talk about that market, we largely talk about the, the spec pool market, which is you know the the equal to the the zero to one hundred slice or all of the the mortgage itself. There's not a structure um, overlaid on top of that. There's a corner of the market that does that, but but when we typically refer to agency mortgages, we're just talking about the pass through. Um, on the non agency side, you can you can play within structure. There's structure in every deal, so you can be further up the capital structure, meaning you have more credit enhancement. Uh, likely, you have uh, uh, an exponential or an increased right to prepayments. You're going to get prepayments first, and you might get a larger share than your pro rata share, which can result in a shorter duration 
for individual securities and thus uh, provide less volatility than uh, than what you may have seen in the agency mortgage market last year. So the non-agency space, just due to the structure, is naturally a little bit shorter duration than the agency structure. Okay, great. And you and when we think about this in terms of, we all go back to sort of like the housing market, which has a big been a big conversation, obviously, for the past year. We've seen, you know, there's been actually, there was no catalyst here, as many people as as the, we had, as many people thought or were very concerned about, even though there was never our, I can tell you, CIO was never our projection there would be any type of, type of catalyst in the housing market. But we've seen actually not only just a recovery, but a stability and a very good recovery, which has positives and negatives, right? The positive part is the, is the fact that obviously it's, you know, mortgage debt is two-thirds of consumer debt, and we know that the consumer is a big part of GDP. We know that they've locked in very low rates, right? If we look at, his, you know, about what is this, around 70% or somewhere near that 6% of like a 4% below, we know there's a supply-demand shortage. So when we think about housing going forward, okay, two things. One is that how do you think this sort of stability that we're seeing, do you think it continues? And two, I just want you to just talk a little bit more about the headwind potentially to this affordability index, even it might how it might weigh on lenders or underwriters or anything like that that you could provide would be great. Sure. So, you know, we, we demographically we're in a very unique place where uh, you've got the largest generation in U.S. history in the form of the millennials uh, going through the call it mid part of their you know, household formation, ultimately household expansion, uh, and and their leverage cycle. They're kind of reaching that age where you start to really see. Uh, people historically increase leverage largely through home buying, entering higher, you know, higher earning years of their career, et cetera. Right behind them, I think turning 18 or 19 this year is Gen Z, which is projected by some economists to be slightly larger than the millennials. So you have these two huge generations getting ready to pull through the system. Um, the baby boomers are, you know, the natural seller of, uh, of, of homes to meet that demand. Uh, but you know, some of the events of the last few years have made that kind of move late in life to communal living uh, less desirable. They also are a much wealthier generation than any generation to come before them. And so uh, they have the ability to, to stay in their home longer, afford in-home care, things of that nature. So you've got this this environment where, depending on whose research you read, we'll call it three to seven million units uh, short, both multifamily and single family combined, uh, for uh, current demand. And if you forecast where that goes to over the next five years, you need to build something in the area of, of you know, two and a half million plus units a year uh, sustainably. And, and we've only done that a couple times in, in U.S. history. So this looks a lot to us like the demographics that you had when, when baby boomers returned from, from Vietnam and went through this, you know, you had this big demographic surge come back. We hadn't built a lot. We'd been focused on the war effort and you had uh, a tremendous shortage of housing and you had rates that were substantially higher and yet home prices did quite well. Uh, and we see that same sort of dynamic. I will say there are regional, you know, there's whenever you have conversations like this at a national level, there's certainly exceptions in every region, um, just like there were in, in the global financial crisis as well. But, um, you know, at a national level, we really do see home prices you know, having stabilized here and 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 starting to ascend again, um, the affordability issue that's created by by higher rates um, is going to impact uh, the first time home buyer, and that buyer, if, to the extent that you are able to qualify at a higher rate, um, I think naturally, anytime you you have somebody paying six and a half for somebody paying three and a half, that six and a half is naturally a, a slightly higher credit risk. Um, they're using more as a, of a percentage of their of their disposable income to pay that debt uh, than what you have in the, the mortgage market overall, which averages three and a half percent today. So there's a slightly higher credit risk for that brand new mortgage, um, but 
Uh, I do think that we're going to continue to see, especially on the agency side, affordability products rolled out to help people get into homes. Uh, because if we if we kind of look at the U.S. consumer and, and bifurcate that into groups, um, even going back to 2019, if you were owning a home or renting by choice, meaning you wanted to live close to the office or in a fun area of town or something, financially you were doing quite well. Delinquencies on, on their debts were either holding stable or falling. Uh, but the consumer that was forced to rent uh, had not been able to build equity in their home since the bottom of the financial crisis. They likely had not owned the S&P. So they'd seen their cost of living go up at almost twice the pace of, of their wages. You've got better wage growth now, but uh, but you also have a lot of rent growth again. So that that cohort of, of kind of the renter that's trapped there um, is seeing some stress. I think that's they also happen to be the, the highest spenders of, of their income. So as we think about how the consumer could play forward here, um, they're, they're a particularly vulnerable place. And so I do think we'll see some more affordability programs rolled out, but I think that's going to find its home in the, in the, in the agency world. Uh, and one other comment, and then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll turn it back over to you, is that, 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 that credit expansion for those of us who were around prior to 2008 is, a, is an unnerving thought on its own. Mm. But if we look at mortgage credit availability, there's an index that um, you can find on, on the Mortgage Bankers website, uh, Mortgage Bankers Association website. Uh, it, mortgage credit is, is, is tighter today than it was in September of 2012. It's only about a, a third of a third as available as it was in 2004, and only about a ninth as available as it was during the peak of, of the global financial crisis or, or lead up to it. So we're nowhere near a place from an underwriting perspective where we would have any cause for concern um, around an expansion of. Do you guidelines. think it's too tight? I think it's too tight. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you think about just you know we we talk about or we read about this mortgage buy downs, right? We know that we've had either. The consumer has the ability to pay points. We have the home builders offering these mortgage buy-downs and still keep very decent profit margins, by the way. Do you think that that's a trend that kind of continues in terms of buying down those who can, you know, the, you know, in terms of having a low mortgage rate from that 675 to 55 or whatever it might be? And, and how do you think that sort of plays out in the next 12, 18 months? I think we will probably still – Still continue to see that trend, provided that there's still profitability for the the home builders and, and what they're doing. And and you know, with material costs uh, likely coming down as, as as energy costs have have come down some this year, um, if we do get an uptick in unemployment, you know, through through a, a cooling of the economy in the second half, uh, that may ease the labor market a little bit too and drop some costs there for them potentially. Uh, then I think that is a trend that we will see. You know, mortgages are are the only place where the consumer seems hyper focused on rate, right. um, and less so on payment. Um, and I think you can see that in in, in the non in the legacy RMBS space with the you know the prepayment activity having slowed down as rates have risen, um, every one of those borrowers could lower their payment by refining. Right. Um, but people tend to be very rate focused there, so I think we will still see people try to manage that headline number lower. So how do you think in terms of we always you know the, the, the difficulty with or not difficulty the challenge with and that's why you use experts like yourself to try and really understand the prepayment to when exercise when somebody exercises an efficient option. So when you have these kind of buy downs of five and a half, or even the inversion of the yield curve as much as we have. How do you think the predictability will be in terms of prepayments going forward or, or any of those, those kinds of things that we may see if, in fact, we go back to the neutral rate and, tenure, and we go to 2.5% tenure treasury yield in 2024? Sure. So I'll give two answers. One is as it relates to uh, to people buying, you know, investing in the space today uh, from, from your side of the world. Um, the models have all basically move to the left bound for, for prepayment assumptions. Every every security out there is is anticipated or being priced to its maximum extension with historically low prepayment rates. 
Uh, and given the amount of volatility and where we are in rates and, and, and the, the, the coupons of those underlying mortgages, there's really being a very little value being ascribed to the fact that they could speed up. So I think that creates a tremendous amount of upside. Uh, we believe uh, that very strongly that we will see turnover be, be higher uh, than in, in, in prior periods. I think one of the big components of that uh, is that th- there is more equity in the housing market today than I'd say ever before, but last year this time there was slightly more. But but uh, from a from a you know, if you zoom out, we have more ho- equity in the housing market than ever before. People can use that equity to buy the next house, um, and rolling that equity into into a house that maybe is further out with more space uh, at a lower price point, et cetera. They can really keep that payment around where it is today. The average homeowner in the U.S. also notably uh, has about $200,000 of tappable equity or, or equity that would get still keep them under the ADLTV range. Uh, that's, a, that's a whole lot of money yeah. uh, to go get, especially versus the median income in the U.S. Uh, and so we do think we'll see a little bit more cash out refi activity than the models predict. We do think we'll see more housing turnover um, than, uh, than, than the models predict. And so there's a lot of upside to that narrative. In terms of accurately predicting, you know, people can create really fancy and, and, and sophisticated <laughs> yeah. models, uh, but ultimately you're trying to predict human behavior. Sure. And so we like to think about it as a range of outcomes. And if we think about a, a, a you know, very simply you know, a bear case and a base case and a bull case and what that looks like and how that return skew changes, we can get very comfortable that in a low prepayment, high default environment, we have positive yields, preservation of principal, et cetera. And then in a, you know, in a, in a fast prepayment environment uh, where you have a rate rally and not a huge uptick in defaults, uh, you can have tremendous upside over your your you know modeled yields. So, uh, we think that that the market today is is pricing that in a very attractive skew. Right, I, and I think that's I'm really glad that we talked about that because that's been a lot of questions that I've gotten as well. And the second the, the second most common question is, and I'll be the we'll be the first one to admit. Listen, CIO came in, long agency MBS. There were certain you know points that we had forecasted very well. The one that we didn't was a failure of three banks. Yep. And really that financial instability. And not only that, it was just obviously the um, – when the FDIC came in, now we have BlackRock and just the the more supply that we had coming into the market in a very low supply environment, thank God. But how do you think that – how do you see that going forward? Because you always have that pocket of vulnerability about some of these banks. Like could this financial instability happen again, particularly as the yield curve does stay inverted and we have money market funds at 530, why should I keep my money in a deposit? So when you have these kind of variables, like some of some of it's a direct impact, like an agency MBS, and some of them are just a contagion with pullback, in like what would happen in the non-agency market, in terms of just you know that whole uncertainty about these pockets of vulnerability. How do you see that playing out? We've seen a lot of recovery, right? We're in a good, you know, MBS have tightened in, you know, vols come down a bit, but it is still sort of that caveat out there that people are a little concerned. Like, how do you see that sort of playing out? And do you have a concern that, you know? I never thought it was a banking crisis. For those of us like you and I have been in the business in a long time, that was no crisis. Right. So, so when we have, and thankfully because the Fed acted so quickly versus waiting like ten months that they did, you know, during the GFC time period. But how do you see that playing out, sort of, or what concerns do you think that could come of it, if at all? Yeah. So I think that that is a, a kind of big economic or macroeconomic question. It's also a big policy response question. Uh, you know, the the Fed acted. Uh, and the FDIC acted pretty quickly in response um, to those three banks, which were three major institutions. Um, the asset side of the balance sheet is a problem for the vast majority of, of banks out there. 
um, the deposit side of the, the equation seems to be unique to, to those banks, or at least more concentrated in those banks. And you've seen, I think, a more, uh, you know, a, a, a stickiness in, in the deposit base elsewhere. I don't think that that, you know, if, if, we, if we kind of fast forward and say, well, what happens if, if we start to see the economy, you know, continue to cool on the backs of sub substantially tighter lending standards um, by these institutions, does that lead to a natural outflow of deposits as, you know, banks and, and, and others or as, as companies and others pull cash to, to fund operations? You know, do, do we get to a place where this is, is more systemic and more widespread? Um, I think that that's a, a bear case outcome overall. I do think, though, tighter lending standards are, are here. Um, and so when we think about areas, you know, oftentimes structured products where, where our funds are focused get, get painted with a broad brush, despite it being a north of $3 trillion uh, market that has a number of, of sectors and subsectors within it, all with their each kind of, you know, nuance. And one of those major sectors is, is the commercial real estate sector. Mm -hmm. um, that's a place that and I think we're, we're very careful to, to, to make the comment that investing in commercial real estate, just about at any point in any cycle, you can make money doing that directly. Buying debt off those um, off those assets at this point in the cycle is something that, that, that unnerves us quite a bit. We see a lot of vulnerability there um, in terms of, of the pathway forward for some of these highly levered buildings. Uh, and in a position, especially within in, in a mutual fund, where you're trying to be a passive investor, so that's a space that that we think this really where that comes home to roost. That kind of banking narrative on the on the the levered loan side potentially as well as, as some of those companies that, that that access you know bank loan funding, um, do they find themselves under funding pressure uh, as as banks and other lenders start to pull back um, from a housing market perspective overall. Again, you've got most everybody locked in today at 30-year fixed rate mortgages. The great thing about mortgages and about ABS, quite frankly, is the amortization component. Yeah. Once you've accessed the capital markets once to buy a home, you never need the capital markets again to pay it off. Um, you can amortize it over 30 years if you don't move, and that, bond, that, that pays to zero. That's not true of, of commercial, um, both, both real estate and commercial, uh, commercial loans. Um, so I think that is a very underappreciated component of, of, of owning mortgage credit today. Uh, and why we're just we well the spillover could create volatility it could create elevated um, elevated spread levels in agency MBS and ultimately weigh on performance and turn this more into a carry year than an appreciation year. Um, I also think the reinvestment risk is quite high, um, and if we do see that slowdown and that materialize, you likely get a change in, in Fed policy, and so uh, you could see you know the 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 duration move um, you know driving a lot of that price return in the second half. So when we when we think about um say, just the mortgage market as a whole. We, we know how well credit is done. Corporate credit, high-yield credit. I mean, the best thing in fixed income now is triple C high-yield. Shocking. <laughs> I, you know, but, but that's just, listen, you had a lot of FOMO coming in because we thought a recession would happen earlier. So people recognize that, you know, we might have a, a much better scenario and I get triple Cs or 14%, so everyone went piling in. So I do, we do believe that mortgages are actually much cheaper than corporate credit. What within that mortgage sector do you find the best opportunities right now, both at both in the agency and non-agency side? Sure. I think you're supposed to be diversified across it. Um, we began in October of last year buying agency mortgages within our fund for the first time in, in several years. Um, it's still, you know, not the not the largest allocation in our fund uh, as of as of today. It's about uh, it's about 11 percent. Um, the uh, in our in our our, our flagship vehicle uh, in but but in non-agency RMBS is really where we see the most value, and we see that because. 
you have incrementally wider spreads. Um, you have an ability to, to kind of manage your duration pretty efficiently. And then you've got really high quality underwriting as we highlighted how stringent mortgage credit underwriting has been in the post-global financial crisis period. You have very low loan to value. Uh, and you've got an ability there to invest a little bit. You can go down the capital structure and be comfortable. If you look at some of the, the research that's come out, it's kind of the one place where people say, well, you know, we don't you know, we typically don't, you wouldn't issue with a triple C, you'd have a, a single B rating. We're right. comfortable going down the capital structure there because of the the, st- uh, the, the sustainable fundamentals that the housing market exhibits and the incremental yield pickup you can get there. So when we look across the non-agency space, if we see yields you know, ranging from AAA or on AAA assets in the Called six and a half to twelve percent range, depending on your assumptions, uh, and you have you know through the investment grade spectrum yields in that seven and a half to fifteen with upside north of there. Uh, that makes a whole lot of sense for us. We think that's a great way for investors to, to kind of go out and get some high quality fixed income, uh, earn a decent amount of current yield, uh, and still retain that optionality for for price upside. And what type of non agency? Uh, so we we invest across that world, both uh, both in legacy and new issue. Uh-huh. Over time, we've skewed more away from the legacy universe and, and, and towards new issue. Our favorite part of that uh, has been our largest allocation has been for the prime jumbo borrower, um, which is you know often referred to as America's best borrower. Right. Uh, those are our you know seven sixty five FICOs, uh, sub sixty five LTVs, you know, home price index adjusted, um, full doc qualified mortgages. So you know. People that would honestly be reflective of, of some of your clients here. Uh, and, and that's what makes up the, the, the largest cohort of, of our investment portfolio. We love a few other uh, components. We like the non-QM component, though it's been small uh, as part of the fund. But we see a lot of value in each of those subsectors. We think you know, balancing out across them is, a, is an appropriate way to build a portfolio. Well, this has been a really great conversation. You know, I thank you so much for, for speaking with us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.